Well, so how are those New Year's resolutions holding up? Yeah, that's what I thought. You know, actually, according to U.S. News and World Report, three out of four of us make them. And uh, it's amazing how obsessed we are with self-improvement as a nation. We really feel that uh, we can make ourselves better if we just try hard enough. So in the, um, in the vein of good spirit and of really just the facts of life, I'd like for us to look at a cartoon. This lady comes up to uh, New Year's resolution box with her resolution to place in the box. And she tries, doink, and uh-oh, it's too big. So she twists it and wiggles it a little bit, tries to get it in, won't go in, gives it a gentle bonk with her club. And now the critical moment of decision. Will that resolution be kept? And we see... She says, controlling my temper was a dumb idea to begin with. <laughs> well, you know, in spite of resolutions, how successful are we at keeping them? That same poll that I mentioned to you, newest News and World Report, says 46% of us don't keep them, and about 30% of us make the same one every year. Why is it that uh, we have that struggle? For example, you know, the losing weight, that's always a big one, resolution, especially after Thanksgiving and Christmas, we just uh, overdid it there. Why is it that 15 out of 16 people, when they make the resolution to lose weight, they go right back to it? It doesn't last. Why is that? Well, the answer is because, as you know, it's a diet, it's not a lifestyle choice. You've got to make a lifestyle choice for it to actually make a difference, not just go on a temporary fast or whatnot. There's got to be an actual change. And that's the problem, is change. As while we're so committed to the benefits of change, or we all want the, the benefits of change, none of us want the hard work that it takes to have that change happen, or the positive change. So while we are a nation that is obsessed with self-improvement, we're, we're also a nation that's... Um, uh, opposed to self-denial. And to have one, you got to have the other. Mark Twain says, the only person who likes change is a wet baby. <laughs> and I think that's our problem. So, so many times in our spiritual lives, we struggle with going up and down in our relationship with God, primarily because we view God as a diet and not as a way of life. You know, we, we, we do our own thing and we realize the folly of it and so we will get a little closer to God and we enjoy the benefits of it and then we begin to drift back away from God, just like a diet. And I think that's, that's why we struggle so much. We need an actual life, lifestyle change as opposed to just a diet in our relationship with God. But how do we get that? How do we keep the change that we want to have in our lives and not go back? Well, I'd like for us to look at that issue today and turn with me, if you would, to Nehemiah chapter 10. If you've been with us through Route 66, you're familiar with sort of the history of Israel as we've gone through every book so far up to Nehemiah. And really, Nehemiah, chronologically, is the last book we've got. And we looked at Ezra last week that talked about 
coming back from exile. You know, God's people have been disobedient. God says, if you do that, I'm going to send you into exile, out of the land. And they, they did it. And so God sent them out of the land. And we saw last week with Ezra that they began to come back. Well, Nehemiah is the, the third and final return coming back into the land. And you have in the, in the book of Nehemiah really the very last thing that happens historically in the Old Testament. Now, obviously, there's a whole lot more Old Testament coming after this, but it all fits in the stuff we've already looked all already looked at. All the prophets, uh, even Esther, which comes after this, fits in the book of Ezra, which we looked last week. So Nehemiah is the last book, really, in the history of the Old Testament. And so what we're going to look today is how the Old Testament ends, and it's not a pretty sight. Nehemiah is really an interesting character. This guy worked for a pagan king. We talked a little about that last week. Worked for a pagan king, and here in the book of Nehemiah, he wants to go back to the land. He hears that the wall around Jerusalem has been broken down. He wants to rebuild the wall. And he gets permission from his king boss to uh, take a little sabbatical. And he takes, goes back to the land and takes some people, and they rebuild, rebuild the wall in 52 days. All around the city. 52 days they rebuild the wall. But really that, though that's the first part of the book, that was easy compared to what Nehemiah had to rebuild in the second part of the book. You have an awesome prayer in chapter 9. Uh, I don't know of a, of a more humble prayer that sums up, a greater prayer that sums up the, the history of Israel and what has happened in that nation and how they realized that they made so many bad choices. And as you go down through chapter 9, we won't look at the details of it, but you see words all through it like, but, and therefore, and however, and yet, nevertheless. You've got all these words of contrast, and what they're contrasting is they look back in the history, it's the same thing you can contrast if you look back in yours. That is, our incredible unfaithfulness compared to God's incredible faithfulness. God, we were like this, but you were like this. God, we were like this, nevertheless, you were gracious. And they get all the way through this chapter in this great prayer, and they decide they want to make some changes. We want to have a positive change. We don't like the way our history's been. We don't like how we've been unfaithful. We want to make a change. We want it to stick. And so they write down some specifics, and they sign it, and they say, this is what we want to do. And now, as we're in chapter 10, look down at verse 29, which is where we'll start. And we read that the people, verse 29, are joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to observe all the commandments of God our Lord and his ordinances and his statutes. And then starting in verse 30, they give the details of uh, what they want to change. And that we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. As for the peoples of the land who bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also placed ourselves under obligation to contribute yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our Lord. Then uh, scoot down to verse 39. The chapter ends. For the sons of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of the grain, the new wine, and the oil to the chambers. There are the utensils of the sanctuary, the priests who are ministering, the gatekeepers and the singers, 
Thus we will not neglect the house of our God. So they get real specific about the things they want to change. And they list here in the verses we've read uh, three things, and you noticed them as we read through them. Particularly, they say we're not going to give our daughters to the foreigners any longer, nor take their daughters for our sons. And the idea here is not uh, a shunning of interracial marriage. It is a shunning of interreligious marriage. And usually, a foreign race, though, would have a foreign god. And so it's kind of summed up. You see, no, you got notable exceptions in the Bible. Rahab, uh, the Canaanite, you got, uh, Ruth, the Moabite, and yet they converted to believe in the true God. So it's not an interracial prohibition. It's an interreligious prohibition. And they say, we're not going to do that anymore because we know that when we do that, we marry an unbeliever, and an unbeliever is going to affect us in a negative way in our spiritual walk. Another thing they say is the Sabbath. Uh, we're going to obey the Sabbath day. Now, this is not something you and I are bound to any longer because we're no longer under this covenant that they were under, the old covenant. We're under the new covenant. We're no longer bound by the Sabbath day, but they were. And they hadn't been keeping it, and they say, we're going to keep it. We're not going to work on Saturday. And then at the end, they talk about uh, being faithful in giving, talking about uh, forego the crops and uh, obligation to contribute financially. So you've got these three areas that they had been, not had been doing, that caused their exile, that now they want to say, look, we want to, we want to do this. We want to make sure that our marriages are what they need to be. We want to make sure that we're honoring God uh, by not working on Saturday. And we want to uh, be giving faithfully financially. So those are the three things that are listed. And they end the chapter by saying, thus we will not neglect the house of our God. We've been negligent in the past and we don't want that to happen anymore. And so they write it down, they sign it, and everybody goes, yay, and, you know, we want to change. And you have chapters 11 and 12 now that focus on the great ceremony and the dedication of the wall, and everybody's happy and everybody's committed. And then comes chapter 13, the very last chapter of the book of Nehemiah, and historically the last chapter of the Old Testament. Now what has happened, Nehemiah was with them for 12 years. But remember, he left his king boss, had to go back, and then he came back again to Jerusalem, and when he came back the second time, he saw that things had changed. It was not the way it was when he left it. Remember, when he left it, everybody was going, yay, we're going to be obedient, and then he comes back, and all of a sudden, things are different. Chapter 13, look at verse 4, and let's see what happens. It says, now prior to this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, being related to Tobiah, had prepared a large room for him, where he formerly, or where formerly they put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the utensils, and the tithes of grain, wine and oil prescribed for the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. Now, why is this? Significant. Well, I don't know if these items that we read through sound familiar to you, but those are the exact things back in chapter 10 at the end that they say, we're not going to neglect the house of our God. If you compare the end of chapter 10, we say we've got the contribution of the grain, the new wine, the oil, the utensils, and then you've got chapter uh, 13, verse 4 through 4 and 5. The very same things are listed there as having been neglected. Moreover, you've got this guy named Tobiah living in the temple. Now, who was Tobiah? Well, if you were to read the first part of Nehemiah, you'd understand that Tobiah was uh, 
a guy who was opposing all that Nehemiah was trying to do. He was one of the head people saying, don't build the wall. We don't want you to build the wall. And now they've got this enemy of the Lord living in the temple of the Lord. Pretty interesting change. What did Nehemiah find when he comes back? He finds out the same thing that you and I often find out when we, when we make great resolutions, and that is that the national repentance was short-lived. It was a diet. It wasn't a life change. It was a diet. It was temporary. This week I reread a portion of uh, Jonathan Edwards' memoirs, his diary, in which he writes... He says, how deceitful is my heart. I take up a strong resolution, but how soon does it weaken? So that it's to no purpose at all to resolve, except we depend on the grace of God. For if we're not for his mere grace, one might be a very good man one day and a very wicked one the next. So the question I'd like for us to ask and answer here this morning is... The change that we know that we need to make in our lives. That's not so much what I want to talk about. It's how we're going to keep it. How are you going to keep that change once you make that desire or that resolve to, to change? What did this nation not do that after all these years of being spanked, after the great resolution that we looked or that we talked about, uh, and now in chapter 13, they backslidden. What can we do to avoid? What did they not do that we should do so that this doesn't happen to us? Well, that's what I'd like for us to talk about some today. Now, if, remember when we started there in verse 4, it says, now prior to this. In other words, there's something in verse 1 through 3 that happens after verse 4. That's why we read verse 4 first. Nehemiah comes back and finds out this guy, Tobiah, is living in the house of God. So what happens as a result of that? Well, look back at verse 1. Nehemiah says, On that day they read aloud from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and there was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. Why is that significant? Because this guy, Tobiah, was an Ammonite. And not only did they have him living in the assembly of God, and the people of God, but he was living in the temple of God. And if we were to read verse 2 and 3, we'd see that in response to God's word, they booted him out. They got rid of him. In fact, everybody in the nation that wasn't supposed to be there was excluded. I think the point here is that they had been neglecting the word of God. Because as soon as the word of God was there before them, they immediately knew what they needed to do, <clears throat> and they went back to doing what they needed to do. So here's a principle, that that change that you want to keep in your life, you keep that change through a jealous commitment to reading your Bible. Because the fact is that if you're not regularly, personally in the, in the, in the Word of God, you won't, you won't change. You know, the change begins by realizing that there's nothing you can do to improve yourself. And I sure hope, in and of yourself, that you realize that, that you've lived long enough to know that if it were all up to you, um, your life would pretty much be a train wreck. But the Lord Jesus, because he died on the cross for our sins, and when you place your faith in Jesus who died for your sins, you know that your sins are forgiven. 
And even beyond the, the legal aspect of knowing that now you can have a relationship with God because when he looks at you, he sees you just as pure as his son Jesus. You know you have a relationship with God at that point. But what about the life you live now? God's also committed to helping you become like Jesus Christ. How can we cooperate with the, the Spirit of God that resides in you once you place your faith in Jesus to keep the change that you so desire? Well, I think one of the most important things is to keep that change through a jealous commitment to reading the Bible. I'm sure that many of you are familiar with uh, what's called the serenity prayer. I'm familiar with it, or at least uh, pretty familiar with it. I... Um, it was on a plaque, and that's most of the time where you see it. You know, it's that, that prayer that says, Lord, give me the, uh, help me to, uh, how does it go? <laughs> God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. You know, you, you've, seen, you've seen that before? Well, actually, we only have the first couple of lines on, on all our plaques, and there is a, the rest of the poem goes on. It's actually uh, just as good. It's written by a guy named Reinhold Niebuhr, and it goes, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. That's where most plaques stop, and then it, but it goes on. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as the pathway to peace, taking as he did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy in the next. I think it's a pretty good goal. But there's a couple of questions that beg themselves as they come out of this, and that is, where do you get the wisdom that this prayer requests? Where do you get the wisdom to know the difference between the things you can't change and the things you ought to have the courage to change? Where do you get God's will? Where do you find God's will to which you, you surrender? Because he says, uh, you know, if I surrender to his will that I might be reasonably happy in this life, supremely happy in the next. Where do you find that? Where do you find God's wisdom? Where do you find God's will? You find it in God's Word and no other place. We find it in the Bible. Calvin and Hobbes, uh, of course, is always relevant here. Calvin says, know what I pray for? Hobbes says, what? The strength to change what I can, the inability to accept what I can't, and the incapacity to tell the difference. <laughs> Hobbes says, you should lead an interesting life. He says, oh, I already do. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of us do too, don't we? When we have that kind of uh, lack of focus and lack of understanding, you know, we start praying stuff that doesn't even make sense. Much more, how are we going to live? Where do you get that wisdom? Where do you know God's will? You get those things by reading God's word by having a jealous commitment to reading the Bible, something which Israel didn't have at this point. Consequently, they went so far in their neglect of the temple of God as to allow a pagan enemy of God to live in the temple. That's how bad it had gotten. We see another reason they backslid in verse 6. And this is key. Nehemiah says, But during all this time I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had gone to the king. After some time, however, I asked leave from the king. What does that tell us? Why did they backslide? Because Nehemiah wasn't there. They didn't have any accountability. 
as the bottom line. And so they backslid. About five years ago, the bank Bearings, it's the oldest bank in Britain, they had a chief trader in their Singapore office who was making some pretty risky financial investments with uh, Bearings money. They didn't anticipate, obviously, nobody can. There was an earthquake in Japan uh, shortly after that, and Bearings lost a ton of money. But rather than cut his losses, this trader uh, doubled his investment, hoping that the market would rebound and they'd get back everything they lost. Well, it didn't happen. It just kept going down and down and down. Now, finally, Bearings had to fork over about $900 million and declare bankruptcy. Now, here's the question. How could a 28-year-old employee in Singapore crater a 233-year-old British bank? Answer, the guy did not have any accountability. Nobody was checking up on the things he was doing. Time magazine described it like this. They said, a trader keeping his own books is like a schoolboy grading his own tests. The temptation to cheat can be overwhelming, particularly if the stakes are high enough. And that's exactly what happened. You know, incidentally, I think that's why our founding fathers had such, I think, wisdom knowing that the best kind of government in a fallen world is a democracy. That which there is a government, and I think it's neat the way they organized it. You've got not one branch that's got power, but you've got three branches that check and balance each other. It's a really healthy view of the depravity of man, our government. And ideally, it's set up to where there's accountability for what the, the folks in Washington are doing. When there's not accountability, we are headed right back to the very thing that our founding fathers ran from across the Atlantic Ocean, of the evils of a monarchy and a guy who didn't have anybody that says, hey, you can't do that. What would the king say? Sure I can off with your head. That's the kind of accountability that we need to have. Because as fallen human creatures, anybody that's got too much power abuses that power. You see it all throughout the Old Testament. Even the best kings that we had. We had David, abuse of power. We looked at that. We had Solomon, abuse of power. We looked at that. Uh, even the best succumbed to it. Uh, one more cartoon. This is uh, Johnny Hart, B.C. I like these two ants. One says, what's a resolve, Ma? And she says, it's a promise to stop doing something you do, but shouldn't, and might as well, because if you could stop, you wouldn't have done it in the first place. Exactly true. Einstein one time said that you, you can't get out of a problem using the same things that you have that you got into it with. The thought being, you know, if you've got a personal problem and, it, and your weaknesses are what got you into that problem, you don't have the tools to get out of that problem or you wouldn't have got in it to begin with. That's what he was thinking. And he's exactly right. And so the principle that comes from this text with Nehemiah being gone, and yet when he comes back, then there's accountability... The change that you want in your life, you keep that change. There's some honest accountability to apply the Bible. Not only do you need to have a jealous commitment to reading it, but, you, but then you need to have somebody keeping you accountable to living it. Otherwise, 
You won't. At least not consistently. It'll be a diet. It won't be a life change. John Donne is the guy that wrote the statement, No man is an island. And yet every one of us wants to be, particularly here in America, where the individual is the one that is, uh, the one that is praised. You know, the self-made man, the self-made woman, the one who can stand all by themselves as the one who is held up as the model of success. And yet that is not the way uh, God designed us. He designed us to be accountable to one another. We prefer isolation. You know why? We prefer to be isolated over relationship because relationship means vulnerability. Vulnerability means uh, you can be rejected. Nobody wants to open their heart up only to have it stabbed. So what do we do? We guard it so nobody can get to it. Steve Green, he's a Christian recording artist, he says, Accountability to me is unnatural. My tendency is to only let you know enough about me to give you a good impression. I am a recovering hypocrite. But as you read the scriptures, in fact, you don't have to get past the first two chapters of the Bible to see that God did not create us, did not intend us to be in isolation, but rather in relation. Not in isolation, but in relation. You ever seen those Twilight Zone movies where they, um, the scenario is somebody that's the last person on earth? It's always presented as a terrifying scenario. I remember the one with Burgess Meredith. Remember, he was that guy who loved to read, and he hated people, and he'd go to the library, and people bothered him, and something happens, and he gets what he wants, and he's the only person, you know, alive. And he stacks all his books. All right, here's the first year. This is what I'm going to read. Here's the next year. And he just goes through, and he's all excited that he's all by himself, and then he drops his glasses, and they break. And he can't find them. And he needs somebody to help him, but he's all alone. We prefer isolation, but the bottom line is we need relation. Even when that scenario was real, and God made, God made Adam, and he was the only person that was on the earth. And it was a real scenario. I mean, Twilight Zone for real here. It was the only person on the planet. What did God say about that scenario? It's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. And then once he made that helper, what was his first command to them? The first command in the Bible, if you read it, to humanity, is be fruitful and multiply. It's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now multiply and fill the earth. We were designed to be in relation with each other, not in isolation from each other. You cannot grow and function as a human being, as a Christian, if you are not intimately involved with another human being. And I'm not talking marriage. I'm talking about somebody of the same sex who can look you straight in the eye and say, Hey, how are you treating your wife? Hey, how's your thought life? Hey, how are your finances? Somebody who can actually look you straight in the eye and ask the hard questions. Do you have somebody like that? Somebody that can do that for you? I hope you do. And if you don't, I'll tell you what to put at the top of your prayer list. Because you need that. I need that. If I didn't have that, I'd go straight down. If I didn't have that accountability. If I didn't know that there was a couple of guys that I have to call and I have to talk to. And even when I've got bad news to tell, I'm honest with it. 
You can keep the change that you want to have in your life through some honest accountability to apply the Bible. The scriptures overflow with the implications of this. You read in the book of Hebrews and you see how it, how it encourages us. It says, but encourage one another day after day as long as it's still called today. Why? Lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And it can happen. If the devil can get you by yourself, you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You need somebody else who can look at your life objectively and say, you know what? I love you, but you're wrong. And this needs to change. And you know it needs to change. And I'm here to encourage you. I'm here to pray with you that you can keep that change. Otherwise, you know what we'll do? We'll crawl off all on our own. And I think this is such a shame when you've got somebody who will come up to you and say, you know, you're living with that woman, aren't you? Yeah, but that's none of your business. Or you get somebody who is so, so ashamed. you got the total opposite. The devil will, will uh, set us apart in pride. That's none of your business. Or he'll set us apart in shame. Where we'll hide and we won't be honest with somebody. Two extremes that have the exact same effect. And that is that we don't have people and we're hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. A guy named Kurt one time openly shared about an addiction that he had. And it's a typical addiction to where you repent and you feel God's blessing and then it happens again and again and again. And he was all by himself and just the frustration of this addiction cycle was happening over and over. And it wasn't until he got into a situation where he was accountable with somebody that there was a buddy who could come to him and say, hey, that there was a change. In fact, he made the statement, and I think it is so insightful. He said, I began to understand what shame does. When we Christians try to hide something in the darkness, we give Satan incredible license to work in our lives. So, the more I could be open, the less of a hold Satan seemed to have. You know, the Nazis discovered that during the Holocaust. They figured out if they could get somebody off by themselves, they could get the information that they needed. But when they stayed together, they were strong. So all I have to do is to plop somebody in, in uh, solitary confinement for a few days, and most people, after a few days of solitary confinement, would tell all. Because we aren't designed to hold our values as individuals. We're designed to hold our values as the body of Christ. Not the arm of Christ, but the body. And when somebody has the arrogance to say, look, it's none of your business how I'm living my moral life. It is my business. You know why? Because you're part of the body of Christ like I am. And when one part of the body suffers, I suffer. If I'm not being honest with my sin, you're going to suffer. And it's the same way uh, with you and me. The body of Christ suffers when we're not honest with accountability. I really believe with all my heart, and this is not a flippant statement, that a believer without accountability is a scandal waiting to happen. Because look at the scandals that have happened, and you see there's been no accountability. And if there has been, it's not real accountability. Well, let's look at how this was fleshed out. Nehemiah leaves and then comes back Verse 7, look at what happens. What happened to this nation? Verse 7, he says, 
I came to Jerusalem and learned about the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. And it was very displeasing to me. So I threw out all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Can't you just see that? That's great. Then I gave an order and they cleansed the rooms and I returned there the utensils of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. What does this sound like? You got a guy who goes in and in a rage cleanses the temple. Sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? In fact, it's this very temple that uh, almost 500, 450, 500 years later, Jesus cleanses and goes in and cleanses it out. I want you to notice here what, we're, what is happening. Why is there a room available for Tobiah in the temple to begin with? Because the people hadn't been doing what they said they would do. Because where is, where is the room that he is... Uh, that he was in. It was the room that was supposed to have the utensils and the grain offerings and the frankincense. In other words, people hadn't been giving. And so there wasn't anything to put in there. Hey, Tobiah, we've got this big empty room. Why don't you live there? Remember the three things they promised to do? The giving, the Sabbath, and no mixed marriages. What do you think are the three things now here Nehemiah is going to lay out that they didn't do? Look at verse 10. I also discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who performed the service had gone away each to his own field. So I reprimanded the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? Then I gathered them together and restored them to their posts. See what accountability does? It keeps you honest with your sin. Hey, why is this happening? You told me at the end of chapter 10, Thus we will not neglect the house of our God. Quote, and now I come back and he asks, why is the house of God forsaken? The very same, same thing that they said they wouldn't do, now they're doing. And accountability helped nail that coffin shut. So the giving, they hadn't done. They said they would, they hadn't. And uh, Nehemiah handles that. What do you think's next on the list? Look down at verse 15. He says, In those days I saw in Judah some who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath, and bringing in sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys, as well as, fine, as well as wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, and they brought them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I admonished them on the day they sold food. There's the second one. Remember the three? Giving, the Sabbath, and what was the third one? Mixed marriages. What do you think's next? Look down at verse 23. In those days I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon and Moab. As for their children, half spoke the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. In other words, Nehemiah is walking down the street, up comes this little boy, and he says, well, hello, young man. And the little boy goes, ¿Qué? Hola. He couldn't even speak Hebrew. He's speaking a foreign language. Nehemiah goes, what is this? This guy doesn't even understand me. The kids aren't even speaking the language. Now, why is that such a big deal? Well, remember, it's also the foreign god influence. They're speaking their mommy's language. That's the problem. And mom's not teaching the kid Hebrew. Why is that a big deal? I'll tell you. Because their Bibles were not written in the Moabite language. They were written in Hebrew. What is that saying? The Bible was not being taught during this time because the kids couldn't even speak the language of the Bible. 
So you see, the compromise that had been compounding here, the very things they said they wouldn't do are the very things they did when they were not in the Word and then when they had no accountability. You can make all the resolutions that sound so fine and wonderful. You can join every health club in the United States, but if you don't have some kind of accountability... If, you don't have, if you're not regularly in the Bible to glean God's wisdom, then, my friend, all those fancy words are short-lived. Janis Joplin one time said, I've just made love to 25,000 people, and now I'm going home alone. She said that after a concert. You know, a similar thing could be said probably to many of you here this morning. I've just been here and had a significant experience with a bunch of people, but I'm going home alone. And really, your significant experience here was with a bunch of other individuals, not a bunch who are interacting with each other. Because what are the conversations, right, here on Sunday morning? Hi, how you doing? You know, they're that deep. And, and that's okay. I mean, you know, the Bible does say that a man of many friends comes to ruin. The thought there being you can't be gut-level honest with a hundred people. It's not wise to be. But you can be gut-level honest with a couple of people, and you should be. So how do you do that? How do you get that accountability? I mean, it's clear we've got to have it. How do you get it? Well, I'll tell you. The best way to do it. First, you look at the life of Jesus, and he is such a great model, obviously. Uh, you look at the life of Jesus and how he dealt with people on all different kinds of levels. You've got the, the multitudes that he dealt with. And then from the multitudes, inside that group, you had the believers. Inside that group, you had the twelve. Inside that group, you had the three, Peter, James, and John. And inside that group, you had the beloved disciple, John. And Jesus did not share the same way with all three of these, uh, with all of these groups. He spoke in parables to the multitudes to hide stuff, intentionally hiding stuff. And yet when you get alone, you see him in the Garden of Gethsemane, you got Peter, James, and John, his three close friends, he says, man, come be with me, I need you. He didn't say that to the multitude. It's the same thing for us. So how do you find that, that person, that friend? Well, you start in the multitude. Hey, you're already there. Good job. Then you, you let it shrink. You get involved in some kind of a, a small group. And out of that group, you pray, God, show me who in this group can maybe I get together with for breakfast for once a week and say, look, I've got these, I've got these issues in my life. All I need you to do is to ask me, how's it going? And uh, it may not work out with that person. I mean, most of you who are married didn't, didn't, date the, didn't marry the first person you dated. Okay? It may take a while for the Lord to show you that right person. That's all right. It's worth the hunt. Because the accountability is absolutely essential for living the Christian life. In fact, I can say with no hesitation that those of you who have no accountability, who have no person to personally encourage you in your walk with God, are not growing in your Christian walk like you could be and like you should be. Because you're off by yourself. We need each other, and we need that personal encouragement. It's definitely worth that risk. Solomon said it like this. And this is the word of God. This is not Solomon's opinion, and it's not mine. This is the word of God to you. 
he says, two people can accomplish more than twice as much as one. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But people who are alone when they fall are in real trouble. A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated. But two can stand back to back and conquer. My friend, you cannot keep the change in your life if you do not have personal accountability. You cannot keep the change in your life if you are not jealously committed to your time with God in the Bible. Nehemiah shows us that. And the Old Testament historically ends with that bit of bad news. The best they could do, and they still couldn't keep the change in the nation. We need that with each other. Please don't, don't leave and crawl off back to your island. Begin to pray that you can get involved on a smaller level and get accountable. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, today we bow our heads before you as Americans, as a nation that has declared independence from day one, independence from everything we don't like, and we've carried that in our government all the way into our individual person, that we like to be isolationists all by ourselves. Thank you, Lord, that you created us to need each other, and that eventually we come to that realization, be it the hospital, be it the psychiatrist, be it the pastor, we need each other, because that's how you've designed it. And so I pray, Lord, for those who are here today, content in their plateaued Christian life, that you might stir them up and give them the vision and challenge of how wonderful the Christian life could be if it was lived as it was designed. I pray that they might get involved on a deeper level and that you would bless that accountability. I pray also, Lord, that you'd help us to jealously guard that regular time in our personal Bible reading and prayer, that we may not be deceived by the, the deceitfulness of sin. Lord, we love you today and ask that you would help us to keep this change as a lifestyle, not as a diet. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Lord bless you.